0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com/forward/slash/bioscience. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew Hope, who's a research assistant professor at Kansas State University's Division of Biology. He joined me to talk about natural history collections, and more specifically, the effects of specimen removal on wild populations. So by looking at some older data on small mammal collections in particular, he and his colleagues were able to tell whether there was any discernible effect on a broader group of animals. But I'll let him describe those results, so let's get straight to it. Dr. Hope, thank you very much for joining me today. I am happy to speak with you. Okay, just before we get started and into the contents of your article, I was hoping you could tell me a little bit about uh, natural history collections and the field in general. You know, why are why are samples um, and specimens taken, and why are they kept?
1: Well, uh, natural history collections have been an integral part of understanding biodiversity since uh, we started uh, looking around and, and and trying to understand. Uh, the dynamics of, of how species form and and relate to one another and how they go extinct uh, by extension. For instance, uh, Charles Darwin uh, and much of his research in understanding uh, evolution uh, was based on uh, specimen archives that he collected on his journeys around, around the world. And so uh, really it's... It, it's this concept of, of forming fundamental biological baselines from which we can begin to answer all kinds of uh, questions uh, depending on our different scientific fields. Uh, and so these historical baselines are, are really important for, for maintaining evidence of, of what species occur where at particular times uh, through, through the past.
0: And where are these collections housed? You know, are they at a university in a basement somewhere, museums, that kind of thing?
1: Yes. Uh, generally speaking, um, the, the the best place to house these specimens is is, is in uh, public research archives, and those can either be part of, say, uh, an academic institution, or or part of, uh, say, a state or a, a countrywide museum. Uh, and so, uh, the goal here is to is to maintain these collections uh, in a public manner so that uh, both researchers and the public and educators can use specimens going forward. And so they should all be uh, cataloged in a way to make, maximize their use.
0: And for these specimens, is this something where you can kind of collect once or is it a situation in which you need to continually renew the collection with new specimens?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the question. Um, when I go out into the field myself, I, I generally perform uh, uh, what's called general collecting, where you're setting out uh, traps that, that capture uh, a representative cross-section of the biodiversity that occurs in a given area. And so um, generally that means you'll get more specimens of the more common species and fewer specimens of the, of the rarer species that, are, species that occur in a given area. Um, it also depends on the the kind of discipline that that you're working in if, if I'm an evolutionary biologist and so i'm I'm interested in going out and and collecting specimens across a landscape to understand how environmental change has influenced uh, their evolution and genetic diversity through time and and so it consists of going out and opportunistically sampling to to maximize the geographic scope uh, of of uh, your uh, species of interest what the, the taxa that you're trying to collect. Whereas, um, for instance, long-term research ventures uh, that are looking at uh, an experimental setting in a much uh, more refined area will, will uh, have the potential to collect samples repeatedly in, in a single place.
0: And so, you know, in this case, you could have a situation in which you're not only looking to see, you know, the, the species abundance or range, um, but also perhaps it's change over time?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, one of the one of the biggest values of having these collections is that we can go back in time and uh, use the information that's stored in, in these specimens to compare uh, the situation from the past to the present situation and how that's changed through time. And so... So, optimally, we would have uh, repetitive sampling from any given area uh, to to um, build this time series of specimens uh, that we can use to look at change.
0: And, you know, obviously, there are some obstacles to performing this kind of specimen collection. Um, you know, what are some of those obstacles? There's obviously the, the effort, but kind of what are some of the other challenges associated with this venture?
1: Yeah, it, the interesting part of of collecting opportunistically is that that many of the places uh, that we'd like to try and fill gaps in and and collect specimens from that haven't been sampled before are very difficult places to get to, and so so there's a lot of uh, both financial and and, and time uh, invest investments in in these uh, field collection efforts, and so so really um, part of the benefits of collecting these specimens in their totality, in, including associated biodiversity, which I can talk more about, is, is an ethical responsibility to make the most of those efforts. And so you're not just going out and, and taking a small amount of samples for your own particular research, but you're collecting as much information as you can to provide um, so that other people don't have to go out and repeat your efforts into the future.
0: And that would potentially allow you to have less of an effect on you know populations in the wild
1: yes, yes, and so and so part of this study that 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 we can talk about more is to try and examine what what kind of effect we actually do have as scientists and and, and really these these uh, sampling efforts uh, are a minuscule uh, impact overall on on natural populations compared with other both natural processes and other human related processes that, that are occurring so in assessing the effect on
0: you know wild populations of sampling you know how do you begin to address that question of how big an impact you're having
1: yeah so so this was this was it's not an easy thing to do and and the reason is because generally speaking the best way to address the relative impact of, of specimen collecting is is through an experimental setting where, where you're setting up uh, an area that has specimen collecting and an area in proximity to, to it that does not. And so you're basically doing a statistical comparison of the impacts of collecting. And And generally speaking, um, those kinds of experimental settings are, are done um, within the fields of, for instance, ecology, where uh, – Specimen collecting is not often uh, the major focus of, of those studies. Whereas with evolutionary biologists and and biodiversity scientists that are that are that fundamentally rely on these specimen collections to perform their research, it's it's very often not within an experimental setting. And so um, there's not many instances where uh, the relative impact of these collections has been. Uh, Rigorously and and qualitative has been rigorously quantified, I should say, statistically.
0: And so, how did you address that particular problem in this study?
1: And so, in this study, uh, I was fortunate basically to to find a long term data set uh, based on uh, a past uh, ecological study associated with a long term ecological research site, um, which was in the southwestern US. that contained this kind of side-by-side comparison. And it wasn't an original intention of, of the, the uh, field efforts that occurred, but it provided uh, a great opportunity to statistically assess uh, the impacts of these. And so we had a situation where um, you had field crews out there performing mark-and-release uh, sampling where the animals were caught And tagged, say with an ear tag, and then released. Um, And this was done repeatedly, multiple times a year over seven or eight different years Um, and next to those sites you had um, exactly the same kind of site where um, animals were collected and euthanized and processed um, to produce museum-grade specimens um, for the express purpose of looking at their parasite faunas. Uh, And so and so this provided a means of statistically comparing uh, these two different uh, collection techniques.
0: And just for our listeners who have yet to read the article, uh, what were the species that were sampled?
1: So this study was was sampling small mammals. Uh, these are vertebrates that include both rodents and shrews. Um, and so basically you're looking at... Uh, Mammals from, say, the size of a, a small ground squirrel down to the size of a, a very small shrew.
0: Now, when they originally performed this experiment, uh, were they aiming to collect this sort of data, or is it just a happy accident that they wound up doing it?
1: It is actually. A, it, it's a happy accident, but but it um, illustrates very well the 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 values of, of performing um, specimen collection, at least uh, to a certain extent, within particularly within these, these long-term studies. Um, and so you have both uh, a set of sites that uh, you continue to do mark and release uh, sampling, and so you can get long-term population uh, variability data. Um, but at the same time, you, you preserve specimens that can be used to answer a whole other suite of questions related to, say, the evolution of the species, changes in the distribution of, of different genetic populations through time, and also uh, coevolutionary dynamics of the mammals and their parasites, for instance.
0: Okay, so you're able to collect both of those kinds of information. You know, were these done at, at similar sites? Is there any reason why they didn't do, you know, both the... the- capture and release and the specimen collection at the same sites or? or
1: Yeah. uh, Well, they were basically the, the, the sites were in proximity. And so, uh, within about 500 meters of one another. So, so very close together. And so basically you had, uh, uh, sampling webs, uh, which were basically a, a radial array of traps, um, for the mark and release. And then right next to them, you had another set of webs where, uh, specimens were removed. And so, um, uh, the aim was to maintain long term continuity in in understanding the population dynamics from the mark release sites without removing specimens and then to uh, maintain uh, continuity in knowledge of variability in the parasite faunas from the um, uh, removal sites
0: okay and did you find any significant differences in the effects on you know populations or or anything else? Uh, from doing the mark release versus the
1: removal yeah, so the so the point of this study was was basically to provide an opportunity to to statistically test uh, the impacts of specimen removal and the way this study was set up allowed for that and and so um, the results of our analyses indicated that uh, there were no real significant differences between the removal sites versus the the sites where uh, specimens were marked and released, uh, afterwards. And so it, it really shows that, well, it showed two things. First of all, that, that, uh, the impacts of scientific removal were, were minimal, uh, and not significant. And, um, at the same time, it showed that, uh, populations did, uh, however, fluctuate fairly dramatically. Um, uh, but, those fluctuations were not in response to these uh, scientific collection efforts. They were uh, more related to other uh, more influential variables, such as, such as climate dynamics.
0: So you don't see any patterns such as you know, an initial drop in population after the sampling effort begins um, and, you know, and then a maintained low level or declining rate?
1: Yeah, that would be one of the expectations, that you would see an initial drop, maybe with a, with a rebound in populations uh, after the removal, or you might see a, a steady decline in numbers over the course of a, a number of different years. But, but none, of these, none of these patterns were detected um, throughout multiple years of, of sampling and over multiple different sites.
0: So, the takeaway from that is that you know you can do some quantity of removal sampling in some settings um, without having a negative effect on the wider population
1: yes absolutely and 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 I think this is the this is the big take home, take home message here is that is that the amount of of specimens that we as scientists uh, remove from the landscape uh, really has no um it's not a big enough effort to have any um, uh, significant impact on natural populations compared with uh, many of the more uh, uh, natural phenomenon that these populations are are dealing with, such as climate change or such as uh, predation by uh, uh, predators such as foxes, for instance, which might eat several thousand uh, mice in a year for a single fox. Um, so... So really, it's it's an effort to try and put in perspective the relative impacts of scientific collections um, uh, versus the 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 relative benefits that those specimens provide. So, could you tell
0: us a little bit about some of the benefits you know that you get from this type of sampling effort versus a
1: you know uh, capture and release type? Yes, there's there's numerous benefits, uh, and hopefully, I can get through uh, some of the the more important ones here. Um, One would be just to verify uh, that the specimen that you've caught is exactly what you think it is. And and a lot of the time, uh, what we're dealing with, I work with small mammals, when you're out there on a landscape, uh, capturing these specimens. Uh, they may look very similar um, to a a bunch of other different species that you may find in the same area. And so having a specimen in hand allows you to verify that what you're calling something is actually what it is. Um, And that's just a a baseline reason. Um, One of the other major reasons I would say is of having specimens uh, through time is to allow for repeatability um, in scientific inquiry. And this is one of the major um, issues with uh, with not collecting specimens for research uh, that relies on specimens. And so it's possible, to, for instance, to go out and take a small blood sample from a bunch of specimens and use that uh, for a genetic analysis. But, but what you can't do is then go back and repeat that study after it's been Published and, and repeatability and falsifiability in science is, is a really critical part of, of moving forward. And so having these specimens in long-term archives basically allows uh, the same scientist or anybody else to go back and, and repeat that study and um, repeat it in a different way or in the same way just to make sure that the results were, were the same.
0: You know, that, that speaks to some of the major benefits. And now and we've established that, you know, at least in this situation, there was no significant effect on population. I wonder though, you know, can that result be extrapolated to other scenarios with perhaps, you know, comparatively rarer species? If we are going out and sampling a vulnerable or an endangered species, is there a greater likelihood that there would be an impact on population?
1: Perhaps. Uh and that's always that's always a concern. And and it's it's an issue that, that um, we need to take into account in terms of uh, responsible collecting while while we're practicing um, these techniques. Um, I would say that that collection of rare taxa um, is equally important to uh, collecting specimens uh, of more common taxa. And generally speaking, when you're when you're out in the field. Um, uh, sampling specimens, the the comparatively rare species are caught much less often. And so um, really the specimens that are collected of those taxa are, are proportional uh, to their relative abundance across the landscape. Um, well, one thing I would say um, in addition to that is that uh, it should be kept in mind that, that most of the conservation efforts that are ongoing for comparatively rare taxa and most of the the wildlife management and regulations and identification of of hotspots of biodiversity or regions of of uh, threatened biodiversity are all heavily reliant um ultimately on uh specimen collections and utilizing, uh, the resources that are held within museum collections. And so, and so really most of these specimens ultimately go on to contribute to, uh, beneficial conservation efforts and, and improving management of, of existing biodiversity into the future.
0: That's obviously a compelling case. Any last thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think, I think I, I would, I would just add that providing these specimens, uh, is a, is a practice in in foresight, and so much of the research that I do and that my colleagues, particularly uh, evolutionary biologists, perform, uh, relies heavily on on the efforts of others um, that have collected specimens through past decades, and sometimes we're utilizing specimens that are, that are uh, greater than a hundred years old that are that are housed in these museum collections, and. and Those specimens were originally collected by by scientists who had no idea um, the potential value of those specimens into the future and had no inkling of the kinds of questions that that we're asking right now. And so um, in terms of foresight, I think it's it's important for us to consider um, the potential for uh, these specimens to be used uh, by future generations of scientists who are asking questions that that we can't foresee um, at this present time.
0: And that seems like a great place to leave it. Dr. Hope, thank you very much for joining me today. My pleasure. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.